Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is an intersectional publication celebrating culture, heritage, and diversity. And on Third Waves, we will do the same. I am Daniela. I am a writer, musician, and producer. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. And I am Tribe, radio host and music editor at Third. On this episode, we will be discussing issues surrounding tourism. We will explore things like how communities are affected by it and what a more conscious way of approaching travelling might look like. Talking to us about some of these issues, we have Tom Selwyn, who is a professorial research associate at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology and the London Middle East Institute. He is widely published in the field of anthropology of tourism and pilgrimage with regional interests in Palestine, Israel. He also founded the MA in the Anthropology of Travel, Tourism and Pilgrimage at SOAS in 2010. Okay, so um, should we kick off by just discussing maybe the idea of tourism itself um for me something that's very interesting to think about is like why do people travel um and and i feel like one of the reasons why people do it is to kind of go outside of your own comfort zone um be challenged by new viewpoints yeah. and hopefully come back with um i don't know a broadened scope of your understanding of the world right yeah yeah um but what's also interesting here is that uh, you always leave your footprint in one way or the other. So it's not like um, it's something that you can just do and think you haven't touched on other people's lives, etc. Um, what do you guys think about tourism as a kind of a general concept? Yeah, I feel like there's many positives to going traveling and being a tourist. Um, as you mentioned, traveling allows you to see more of the world and and get yourself out of your bubble so you know that there's more out there. Because it's very sim- it's very easy to be, um, I guess, so grounded in the idea of your home and what, let's say, London is to us, that you forget that there's different ways of doing things, there's different ways of being. Um, so travelling allows you to experience that, even if it's just briefly, even if it's just surface, it's just the opportunity to get yourself out there and, and connect with different cultures and people. What do you think? I mean, I'm a busybody. So one of the best ways I get to take a break is when I travel somewhere else, just because I have no commitments. You know, you just lose your sense of like... Having to be places. Yeah, Mm. exactly. So for me, relaxation and um, disconnection almost to a certain extent, allowing yourself to be around something which is quite unknown is... A, a pro to traveling. Mm. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting that you two kind of touched on the different aspects of like why people travel or people's different interactions. You know, it, it might be like just switching off and being somewhere and being immersed in that, or it might be like going with the explicit intent of you know finding something new. Um, but I'd love to just maybe get into a bit of like um, personal stories about like your travel experiences, where you've been. I mean, we've all been very lucky to travel um, around the world, actually. Do you know what? I have been very fortunate. I, I've been tra- I've travelled quite a few places, um, such as like I did like uh, coast to coast of South America, um, and I also worked on a cruise ship for a while for P&O Australia. So I, I did definitely get to see quite a few places in the South Pacific and Australia and Southeast Asia. Uh, one of the things that kind of stood out to me, <laughs> it's a bit messed up when you think about it, is... Um, we would land on these islands in the South Pacific and um, we'll be there with our cameras or, you know, with all the kind of eagerness of like, oh, you know, this is a, a new place. And there would be, I guess, because of these are small remote islands that have their own distinct communities um, and I guess have a couple of like boats or ships that would land um, every couple of weeks. So they would just casually be the the 
kids there would be casually learning outside. They'll have like outside classrooms. And um, we would just walk past their like um, their lessons, uh, taking pictures, like especially because they looked very distinctive with the, they some of them had blonde hair, as you've seen in pictures and stuff like that. And people would be there with their camera just intruding on these personal moments of you know learning in a, in a uh, educational space uh, another moment that stood out was when um one of the islands we landed on had a i guess a, a reputation for a colonial reputation for being an island where the people used to cannibalize uh people or p- invaders of their island so part of what they've created as a, a touristy aspect of a, um of their island is that people could could go over to a, a fake pot or cauldron and stand there while the um one of the islanders would pretend to be cutting off your throat and cook you and uh you would see people tourists taking pictures of their like husband or their children while this was happening um as if it's a a kind of touristy experience that you can all participate in which was uh I, i felt it was quite um it didn't fit well with my spirit, as people say. So I didn't, you know, there was a lot of moments where I found myself stepping away from being a tourist and and deciding I don't want to participate in this. I think mm. what's really fascinating about those two sort of moments is that one is like where uh, the local community um, are engaging in what they do on a day-to-day basis. So these kids are going to school, which happened to be on, on a beach, and you guys happen to walk past and decide, oh, don't they look interesting? Let me take a picture of them with total disregard of what was happening in that moment and what that interaction might do, like, on a basic level, distract these kids from their lesson, right? Um, and then the other example is where uh, the local uh people have seen that there's a commercial uh, benefit to staging something that is of an ancient custom or whatever um, and then benefiting off that and actually both of these examples are are very uncomfortable for different reasons Mm. yeah Mm. definitely it's true because uh, I guess like you mentioned uh, on one side some people might be taking agency over their um their tourism and how they are perceived and how they want to um, capitalize on it whilst the other it's I guess to a certain extent they've agreed to have um, cruise ships land on their island um, but these children do not have necessarily agency to have their lessons intruded upon like that yeah that's that's a good point it's like people making decisions for people exactly Um, and and you've also been to South America right yeah 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 now, um, South America was cool. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed. Um, so I went to Brazil, Argentina. Um, I traveled quite a bit around Brazil and then Peru. Um, and I, I, one of the things that I picked up on as I was traveling was that there's two ways I felt. And, you know, any, anyone can weigh in on this. There's two ways to travel. Um, you could travel by being an active tourist uh, by staying in the holiday resorts um, and doing the organized trips uh, that your, let's say your hotel or your hostel or whatever um, organized for you and then interacting mainly with other tourists. Whilst on the other hand, you've got uh, people who, I guess, make the effort to kind of integrate in the community. So those are the people that try and pick up the language. Those people are the people that are um, maybe living or staying with the people in the community and um, maybe trying to learn a bit more about the culture. Both both are valid in the sense of, because like we were saying, there's different ways to travel, but um, it it's very obvious when you are traveling that sometimes you come out of it and you've only interacted with, let's say, other Europeans because that's who you've been, I guess, going on these trips with and um, sharing hotel spaces with. Whilst on the other hand, there's a, uh, people who actually have gained something from actually being in the community. Um, no way is wrong. It's just a difference. Um, um, and Rona, how about you? Is there a travel that you you particularly remember about? I would say I kind of discovered, like, my like passion for traveling maybe when I went to Vietnam okay. um, so I was out there for like six weeks which for me is quite a long period like time period of time to be somewhere on holiday um, 
And one of the things I did notice um, about being in Vietnam and the way I was holidaying there compared to some uh, other people I was with was um, sometimes in Vietnam, obviously because of the Vietnam War, there has become like this whole commercialization of, um, say like the caves where the Viet Cong used to use to, you know, hide and battle from the US and etc. Um, they have become quite commercialized spaces and, and spaces that people like to visit. You can go and you can spend money on like getting a ticket and um, viewing those. Um, and for me, like that was just not not something that I personally felt like moved to do. I didn't personally feel moved to go and like um, see these spaces because I felt quite uncomfortable in these spaces to be very honest with you. Um, and it didn't quite make sense to me why I'd go to a place of war with like a tiny bit of like historical context and understanding of it to, I didn't, I didn't quite understand what I'd be doing there. So though I understood that, you know, obviously the Vietnamese, um, the, the war in Vietnam is like a massively important uh, historical event that happened in the country. Um, I just felt uncomfortable with the idea of like basically going through the caves myself and pretending I was like a Viet Cong person. It just wasn't really something I wanted to do. Yeah. I, well, I suppose um, the thing I wanted to say was that I can totally understand why that felt really uncomfortable and I, I feel like I would feel the same. Um, and yet I'm also thinking, you know, if you, if you visit a place like Vietnam and don't acknowledge um, the Vietnam War and, and kind of engage with that on some level that would be also kind of weird um it's just it's just yeah totally like what you're what you're saying the, the kind of presentation that you've encountered there just feels yeah if it makes you feel uncomfortable that's that's just not yeah not i think right, is it? i think the difference for me like i remember one of the first things i did do when i went to vietnam is i went to they have like they had quite a new museum that was built and in the museum you can learn a lot about the vietnamese war so I, it wasn't like i was just like saying like i'm not interested in this aspect of the history it was just more like i didn't understand like why going to certain certain places yeah. and like going through the caves i don't know for me personally that felt like a bit a bit weird and i didn't really get a strong explanation from anyone else who was going um that persuaded me to go Mm. or made it made me feel like more comfortable with going so and that was just something I chose to opt to opt out of I think it's quite interesting because um through tourism I guess there's a level of reflection of how a country wants their culture and their history to be seen and observed by their tourists also just using Vietnam as another example another instance has come to my mind which um i actually did participate on this one i can't remember exactly where it was i think it was in like someone's palace but um basically they had a body that was embalmed oh, wow, like yeah. of an emperor yeah um and like you, you kind of went on a tour and it finished at like this emperor's like <laughs> body basically um and i think i went because i was like oh my gosh like you know the architecture of those buildings it's, it's just amazing do you know what I mean and the history is definitely something I'd like to like like know and understand especially if we're going to be in another culture know and understand um but then I do remember waiting a very long time to see this body and then when I was in the queue and I'd finally seen what do you know what I mean mm. past the embalmed body I remember thinking like damn like that that body's been like that for like two, like, what was it? Like a few hundred at least yeah. years. And I kind of felt sorry for it. Yeah. I can't lie. I kind of felt like, give it yeah. a rest. Like, yeah. <laughs> give it a rest. No, honest <laughs> to God. I, <laughs> it was kind of a bit like, we're all just walking past. Yeah. And, yeah, I know, you know what you mean. It reminds me of the, um, this is a bit of a side point, but uh, in the in the museum, uh, what's it called? The... Um, uh, Royal Institute of Physicians in London, you know, okay. where the 
like all the old surgeries of, and stuff like yeah, all that there is the um the skeleton of like the tallest man or something and next to the skeleton there's a little placard which is basically the will of this guy because throughout his life he was basically toured and showcased as the tallest man i don't know if he's literally the tallest man ever but very tall man um and on and in his will he basically said when i die please oh, not no. let my body be displayed for people to see <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's what's happened to the skeleton. So yeah, it's a bit of a side point. Yeah. But I guess that, that kind of ties in a bit to the the voyeuristic aspect of just mm. wanting to see things and then the disregard of what the um the agency, as you were saying before, tribe, um, of what people in the situation, even if it was in the past, what they might have wanted. Yeah. 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 Um, Tying that in, it kind of reminds me with, um, and tying into what I was saying before as well, about uh, the favelas. Uh, I know that they have some in Argentina and they have it in Brazil. Um, and I'm sure I don't know, in Cape Town they have uh, some stuff as well in South Africa. And it's become a marker of the culture, if you know what I mean. If you think about cause, uh, Brazilian culture, how um, Bali Funk has uh, arisen from there and how um, it's supposed to be very, I guess, vibrant places. But these are places that have arisen out of a lot of segregation, a lot of poverty, um, some of it, you know, from the government's, I guess, policies that they've had over centuries. Um, but yet it's become such a kind of touristic um, hotspot if you know what I mean. So when I was there, there were you can sign up for tours or you can sign up for Bali Funk parties in the favelas. So you will be going to these places where people live and experiencing. They've even opened up post, um, hotels there. If you know what I mean, it's quite interesting. But again, it, like I said before, it comes down to the agency. How much agency do people have over their homes or their their um their environment being turned into touristic spaces, um, especially if it's arisen out of a lot of, I guess, uh, um, positives and, and also negative uh, experiences. Yeah, I, I, I guess the word that keeps coming to my mind is opportunism. And then this is a word that we, we talk about all the time, you know, whether it's on Third Magazine or in our events or wherever, like it's... it's um, you know, as you were saying, Rona, of this tour that you went on, it was obviously a really there was there was an opportunity there to learn something about history, and that's why you wanted to go. And and yet it was seized up as an opportunism moment by some people, and maybe that one was a good example. And there's bad examples, but for me, like I feel like that word is a really important kind of uh, context around all of this discussion. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, another interesting aspect of tourism is like i said the way that we are perceived um it gives us the opportunity to look at the way we look at ourselves as a country so one of the things that i found quite interesting talking to canadians and people from the us is that when they go to the uk they don't just go to the uk they go to the whole of europe and uk is one of the stops in their trip like it's um to them we are part of the European experience as much as we possibly, especially with Brexit, don't see ourselves as much as, uh, you know, especially with the, I guess we, we're in an island, but um, to them, we are kind of part of that and our history's so much welded into that as well. So it, it's interesting the way that we're perceived and the way that we perceive ourselves. Um, there's a bit of a, sometimes a, a difference. Yeah, Okay, so um, we want, always want to kind of have some uh, context around our discussions and oftentimes starting with definitions or facts and figures. So we've kind of collated some um, information and definitions around uh, topics around tourism. Tribe, would you mind starting us off with the, just a definition of what tourism is? Sure thing. I'm sure you've heard most of these like phrases being thrown around, but not actually know how to kind of pin it down or how it fits into what we're all talking about. So I'm going to start with tourism. The definition of tourism is the commercial organisation and operation of holidays and visits to places of interest. 
Um, so I went on uh, the UN website. Uh-huh. Not often that I do that. Um, but yeah, so I went into U- United Nations World Tourism Organization website. There's a quote here, which is, today the business volume of tourism equals or even surpasses that of oil experts, food products and automobiles. That's crazy. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a big big old industry um and the other thing that was interesting on the website was i came across this infographic where they kind of uh listed out the the kind of different reasons why tourism matters and so i'm just going to read a couple of these out but basically to me a lot of these um points are like double-edged swords so for example one of them is cultural cultural preservation uh one is environmental protection um, one is jobs, that makes sense. One in ten jobs um, in the world is is related to tourism. Wow. Um, economic growth, that again kind of ties in, that makes sense. Uh, apparently, the, the figure here from 2018 is that 1.6 trillion US dollars in exports are related to tourism. Damn. Um, and, and it makes up 10% of world, the world's GDP um, and 7% of the world's exports um and and i guess uh yeah the things that really stood out to me but probably the points about cultural preservation and and environmental protection because i can see how tourism can um through encouraging people to engage with history and engage with animals make you aware of these issues and and people start i guess donating money to charity or whatever like different ways of kind of putting a positive on that, um, we know that tourism for sure damages these things directly. Um, so yeah, they kind of feel like the double-edged sword to me. Should we talk about adventure tourism next? Yeah. So adventure tourism is a type of tourism involving travel to remote or exotic locations in order to take part in physical challenge and outdoor activities. So you find that with people who like to go surfing and like go to remote places in Peru and places like that to get good waves. Or you get you find that with like rock climbing and um, what's those like bungee jumping and um, extreme kind of activities uh, that you wouldn't necessarily get in, let's say, the UK. Yeah. Uh, this year has been an especially bad year for um, people who go to Mount Everest. Um, 11 climbers died yeah. in 16 days. Um and uh, first of all, I want to just recommend a really amazing book um, by John Krakauer called Into Thin Air. It's very well written and gives a very kind of comprehensive overview of what some of these issues um, around climbing Mount Everest uh, are. But yeah, I mean, one of the there are like there are many things that contribute to these deaths, um, and one of them is overcrowding on people trying to reach the peak. I think there was a figure of something like eight hundred climbers were trying to to get to the peak and back wow. within this kind of weather window that was just completely impossible. So people were getting stuck, um, get getting overexposed in that kind of altitude, um, and and also like I've, there are many climbers who go there because. Um, they can afford to pay mm. for a tour of that kind, but yet they might not be um, experienced enough or in the physical condition to actually take on that type of challenge. But then uh, the tour is like the company who organized the tour um, feel like they've paid all this money, so I should help them get there. And then there's this weird pressure going on where like people don't feel like they can back out. And that can be just actually deadly. Um, and the other thing for me that oftentimes is forgotten in all these stories is that um, of like something like 200 body count in the history of people climbing uh, Mount Everest, uh, a huge number of that are the Sherpas, Mm. uh, people from the local community who take on this very dangerous job because it's very good money and find it hard to back out of it. Um, And yet, would they be putting themselves in that position if it wasn't because there was uh, a kind of really lucrative job opportunity there? I don't think so. Um, it it's kind of ties into the whole thing about um, tourism being an opportunity for uh, a lot of people who, um, let's say, sometimes there's not much opportunities in their country, but at the same time, to what risk, you know? I think also it kind of neatly like leads into the idea of uh, environmental issues. Yeah. That can be, you know, sort of intensified by tourism. Obviously, waste and plastic is... Uh, international issue but Venice at the moment are particularly struggling 
Um, the sort of sanitation workers in in Venice have quite strict instructions regarding um, dispensing of the waste. Mm. They can't really keep up with how much is being deposited into the bins. We have this very small place which is being flooded with lots of lots of tourists, basically. But on top of that, there is this sort of double standard that is existing in Venice at the moment, where um, sort of there are very strict guidelines and fines being administered to locals when it comes to how much waste they produce and how they're getting rid of their stuff. But these same fines do not apply to the tourists. You know, there were loads of protests about this and some hotels like the Nova Cento Hotel and the Hotel Flora have sort of taken action and are trying to like reduce the amount of waste by stopping you know, using plastic bottles and that sort of stuff. That's um, quite powerful, isn't it? Because what you're talking about there is like a grassroots mm. action against something that isn't right. They, they're having all kinds of issues, right? So another problem is, I guess you could call it a gentrification situation where um, a majority of the houses, I've, I've heard of flats, um, on Venice island itself um, are not owned by locals um, and and that's a real problem as well isn't it yeah currently at the moment like some hosts for airbnb in the city have like 135 listings what? so 135 home listings you know which they're reaping cash off, oh, out of <laughs> which is great for some um but also in terms of like actual rentals since 2015, that's tripled from 2,441 to now 8,320 Airbnb, which is a massive increase. Mm. Um, the only good thing is that in, well, this month, actually, uh, Fair Airbnb has now launched, which is a non-for-profit home sharing site that now allows, um, well, now only permits residents um, to be hosts. Oh, wow. And it limits you to one home. Yeah, that's um, a big difference. And also takes like a 15% cut, which is then put back into the community. Yeah. Um, or put into social projects back into Venice. So That's really that cool. That's a Next good step I forward. Go mm. sure Have you been before? Yeah, yeah so I went like? to Venice um, and one of my best friends lives in Venice. She lives on the island. And one of the first things that she said to me um, was like, you know, people who live on the island, there's like very few of us who are mm. actually locals, like a very small percentage. Wow. Um, it's majority tourists and and there's a huge gentrification problem. Mm. And we feel like we are like the last stand. That's that so we crazy. Are really just trying to fight against that. And the rent is, is extremely expensive on the island. And so you can definitely feel that tourism is, is, mm. a, is a massive um engine um i mean we don't really have time to get into it right now but talking of engines there's the whole uh cruise ship problem uh in venice but um yeah i would just say that that's something to look into hello hi tom hi yeah thank you so much for for talking to us um about tourism today um so tom you've you've worked a very long time in this uh complex field of anthropology and tourism. Um, is there anything that you're specifically focused on at the moment? Um, well, I'm actually writing a, a chapter uh, about why people travel. Um, that's, um, they're going to be published fairly soon. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, I've just finished a, a, a long uh, chapter about Brexit. But um, there is, there are all sorts of relations between Brexit and uh, travel. Uh, but I, I, the, the specific thing that I'm working on at the moment is this question about why people travel, and I, I, de I dedicate it to um, Alan Cordy, who was a three-year-old boy who died on his way um, from Syria to the West because he was bombed out of Syria. And uh, I think that the field of tourism and pilgrimage, by the way, so it's tourism, pilgrimage, and the cultural industries uh, must include people who are forced to travel rather than those who just choose to travel. So I think that we need to talk about refugees as well. And you can see this in all sorts of ways. Uh, 
I published a book on tourism uh, not so long. Well, I published several, but one of the, in one of them there is a very interesting chapter about a hotel um, in in Greece uh, that in the summer is for tourists and in the winter is for refugees. So they do indeed cross, and the Mediterranean region is um, possibly the region in the world where they cross most obviously. What I find interesting is that um, your your work covers um, different types of travel, tourism being um, one of them, because one mm-hmm. of the things that we were discussing about tourism is that um, people, from a tourist perspective, people's desire to go places are, are, are complicated. So um, there are different motivations and different things that people seek out when they go yeah. places. Um, mm-hmm. And so when, when you use the word tourism or travel, um, it actually covers a whole range of behaviors. It does. Um, it's interesting that your work is, is actually so much broader than that as well. Yes, I think actually travel is, uh, it's important to include travel. So we're talking about travel, tourism, and pilgrimage. And if you go back um, into historical accounts of travel, um, <clears throat> particularly, for example, to my favorite medieval traveler, Ibn Battuta, who was Moroccan, um, very famous uh, Moroccan traveler. He, he, he went for about uh, 25 years or so all around the Muslim world and beyond. And uh, he originally went because he wanted to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. But in fact, he was very keen on looking at uh, cities and buildings and listening to intellectuals and to debating all sorts of things along the way. So it was a very rich experience that he had in those long years of travel. And he even spent, because he had to earn a bit of money to keep going, he spent quite a long time as a judge in Delhi. And his travels uh, kind of opened up the whole field in quite a good way. Basically what he said and what other people have said um, more recently is that travel and tourism are about a combination of education and experience. He was one of those famous um, Arab travelers. There were several of them. Um, but he, he was the most famous, and he's written about by uh, Tim McIntosh Smith, mm. who's written several books about him. Um, and he's an archetypal traveler from whom we can learn a great deal about the nature of travel and tourism and pilgrimage. So could we go to this, um, this uh, Israel-Palestine um, area, um, mm. a lot of your work is, is focused on that. Um, I'm, I'm not really um, expert in that in that area, but um, but one thing that I wanted to ask you about was this idea that uh, what what Israel is to a lot of Jewish people around the world, where they uh, where it's sort of considered a kind of homeland. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always been fascinated by the idea that Jewish people from a, from other places who live in other places go to Israel to visit. And, and see it as a kind of returning home in, in, in a way. And yet, of course, that's not their place of actual residence. And mm. they, their kind of influx into that area with certain feelings of entitlement um, can have huge um, impact on the local community. Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is um, not specifically about Israel-Palestine. I'll come to that in a second. But the first thing to say is that Many people in the world, and possibly most people in our world, have a conception of more than one home. I mean, if you think about the huge number of migrants, it's not just the 71 million refugees, but there's many more than that who who move around the world um, for jobs, because they want to, because of all sorts of reasons. That doesn't mean to say that they give up the idea of their previous home or their previous homes in plural. And most of us have an idea of uh, uh, the place that maybe we were born and we have uh, feelings towards that and feelings towards the place we live in at the moment and uh, feelings towards the place we might go in the future or something like that. So the idea of people having an idea of one home is not, in my view, particularly realistic. I think that people have ideas of more than one. And if you think of all the communities that we had in this country, uh, Britain, um, from the, uh, from the uh, Afro-Caribbean region, from South Asia, or whatever it is, I mean, the evidence every day is that 
uh, people who come from these areas certainly have a conception of the historical area which their family is connected to. They have a feeling for that, but they have a very strong feeling for the place that they live in at the moment, namely Britain. So here's an example of uh, people with ideas of more than one home. So it, doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us, I think, that uh, people can, can have these, uh, these um, ideas. Coming to Israel and Palestine, um, it is certainly true that um, many Jewish people in the world um, regard Israel um, as uh, a, a homeland or some kind of homeland. Some, some Jewish people uh, make Aliyah to Israel and go and live there and um, in a sense I suppose feel that they are living out their, um, their life in what they regard as their homeland. Other people, other Jewish people visit Israel and feel that they've um, visited a place which is in a sense their biblical homeland and so on. Um, and uh, and some people, there are some Jewish people who who say, well, it's not. Uh, our our home is in London or New York or wherever, and Israel is Israel and uh, so on. Um, but we don't want to necessarily think of Israel as our home. Now, as far as my kind of work on tourism is concerned, what I would say is that um, I think that. It's fine uh, to feel that your home is uh, there in Israel. I mean, this, uh, that, that's fine. What is not fine is if you then extend it and you make the populations who were there before, um, if you occupy them, if you make life very difficult for them, if there is a great sense, there is a huge inequality between uh, contemporary Israelis and Palestinians, um, and that is uh, unacceptable, and it doesn't follow from um, the idea that Israel is a homeland for the Jewish people. You can have a homeland, and you can you can you can be there, but that does not imply that you have to uh, occupy and oppress uh, somebody else who also regards regards it as their home. And I think that the scholars presently working on tourism in the area would say that uh, it would be a very good thing if um, these kind of issues were explained to tourists and pilgrims as they come um, and that uh, really the task of the tourism industry in that area is to try and uh, speak something about the uh, the truth of the history uh, of the area, the truth of the um, society and culture of Palestinians as well as uh, Israelis, and work towards a situation where there is complete freedom of movement between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Um, and instead, what you get is you get a lot of tourist guides, particularly uh, Israeli tourist guides, who are talking to pilgrims and tourists who are coming there as if the uh, uh, the region was more or less the same as the conception of what the biblical region was. Uh, this is obviously uh, completely unrealistic. It ignores the local people um, and is uh, not really uh, at all um, sensible historically. I mean, obviously, it isn't a biblical area. We've moved on. We're in the 21st century and so on. So all of these complicated um, issues need to be talked about with honesty and with truthfulness rather than giving uh, uh, tourists from the West or the uh, global North uh, some kind of idea that this is in fact a biblical region. In fact, it's a region for all three religions, uh, and indeed more of them. It's not just Jews, Christians and Muslims who live there, but also there's a strong Hindu community also, and an African community, and so on. It's a multicultural, multi-religious area, and it should be talked about to pilgrims and tourists uh, in those kind of terms. Um, would you be able to speak to the idea of privilege in, in a more general sense? For me, I feel like uh, tourism is an inherent, inherently privileged pursuit. Um, and with that, there are, there are lots of tensions and issues that come with it. Mm -hmm. 
You could say that tourists in general are privileged um, or, te or tend to be uh, privileged. But then if you think about it, uh, that's not necessarily true. Um, um, I mean, lots of people will go on holiday um, who don't have a great deal of money, um, but then they take a reasonable, uh, you know, package tour or charter tourist uh, offer. Go to go to a tourist resort in, in the Balearic Islands, for example. Go to Mallorca. Go to Magalufa. I, I, I don't think one can necessarily call them privileged. Um, uh, uh, and, and the other thing is that provided the local tourism organization in the resorts that they go to, whether these resorts are in, in Mallorca or, or uh, uh, Greece or, or Cyprus or wherever, if the local organizers, the, lo the local government of the area concerned, are really careful about, um, yes, looking after the tourists, but yes, also, and um, possibly primarily, looking after the local people uh, by ensuring that uh, taxes are used in sensible ways, uh, that buildings are not obstructive to local people, that local services are um, shared, um, and uh, perhaps local people have privileges over access to those local services, then the tourists are not so necessarily privileged. Uh, I think there are all sorts of cases in the world where they are privileged, um, and particularly possibly in the global south, and that's very unfortunate. Um, and, uh, if, and that results in the same kind of inequalities uh, and so on that we were talking about earlier in relation to Israel and Palestine. If we move back then to Israel-Palestine, it seems to me that in many ways uh, uh, tourists and pilgrims to the Middle East uh, are uh, uh, privileged in the sense that certainly um, Jewish tourists are privileged in the sense that they are uh, regarded as being um, uh, people often with kinship links to the area and who don't have any kind of much responsibility, shall we say, uh, towards um, Palestinian residents. Um, their concern is more or less exclusively with the Israeli population, not the Palestinian population. And I think that is unfortunate. It's also very unfortunate that, that um, evangelical Christians, for example, um, tend to come to the region and tend to tell the organizations looking after tourism in the region, and actually tell tourist guides what they want to hear. What they want to hear is some version of history which privilege, privileges the biblical period more than anything else, celebrates things like King David and all that kind of thing, and completely ignores um, the existence of uh, uh, a large part of the population of region, which is um, uh, the Palestinian uh, community or the Muslim community or whatever. And in that sense, there is, or, there's, a, there's a very unfair sense of privilege um, uh, with those two particular types of tourists or others too. But, so in a nutshell, what I'm saying is that it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that all tourists are privileged over the regions into which they go, but it does sometimes happen. I've given you a couple of examples. I suppose what's interesting that's coming up here is that um, a real danger of tourism of any kind, really, in regards to uh, any region or whether it has, has to do with an area of, of turbulence, um, is that it's very, very easy for a hegemonic um, story to take over. Um, yes. And it's quite dangerous in, in that sense, I suppose. Yes, I think, I think you're right, actually. Uh, a friend of mine has written a book about La Réunion, which is an um, island which is uh, part of France. Um, and uh, the point that he makes is that this is a very beautiful island with mountains and lots of uh, trees and plants and so on. Um, and the whole of the effort of the government is to make it as uh, garden-like as possible. And the reason for that is that people from the metropolitan uh, areas of France um, look at the island and go to the island <coughs> as if it was some kind of garden that they 
um, control, if you like, and it's the it's an example of uh, I don't know the the rational developed um, rich world looking at the less developed poor world, which is full of all sorts of natural things, um, and and uh, and then you know sitting in sitting in hotels and so on. And what is ignored completely are the working conditions of those people working on the coral reefs in the sea or on the, in the trees or the uh, parks of the country. Um, and so any sort of critical understanding of the social and political and economic structure of the island is ignored. What is presented above all is this beautiful garden-like place uh, that is basically for our uh, enjoyment. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I visited Reunion Island a few years ago and it was an amazing experience but even whilst I was there it's very present the sense that you're in a very um, manicured space yeah. I mean when you go hiking in, in Mafat you, you feel like you're somehow in the Alps just just by the kind of uh, the way that it's, it's managed and, yeah. and it's hard to shake the weirdness of that I would say absolutely and I think that uh, I think your phrase manicured place is a very good one. And it does apply to the Alps as well. It does apply to the Himalayas. It applies to all sorts of places where uh, people from um, of the West or the global North go and more or less do what they want. And uh, the economies are subservient to their needs of climbing the ice mountain or, you know, going to the most beautiful uh, uh, landscape imaginable. But the actual conditions under which that takes place are not really the subject of their, um, of their, of their journeys. Um, so it, it is a sort of way in which the global north imposes its own agenda on the global south. I think you're right. Mm. What, would, what would be um, an advice that you might give around the, how to travel more ethically? First of all, I wouldn't necessarily say that people are always traveling unethically. Um, I, I think that uh, probably people would like to, uh, people have a broad range of views about uh, ethical uh, tr traveling. Um, but I suppose the one piece of advice is that uh, actually look at what is happening around you. Don't necessarily um, think that what you read in the guidebook is uh, the correct kind of information. You look at the actual people and society around you and you think about how your journeys are going to affect them well rather than badly. And I think some of the things that we've talked about in terms of manicured places or um, Alps or Israel-Palestine or whatever are examples of areas that uh, where tourism and pilgrimage uh, actually are not particularly ethically based. And I think that it's very important that they should be. And it seems to me that if you actually begin to, to know, to try and find out uh, the real knowledge about the places that you're visiting, then that will stand you in good stead. And I can give you one example, which is actually in Jerusalem. Um, there is, uh, just uh, just uh, next to the walls of Jerusalem, there is a, um, a, an area, a village called Silwan. And this is predominantly a Palestinian village where people have uh, lived for a long time and which is now subject to uh, daily um, uh, um, uh, visitations um, and exclusions by settlers and where the whole place has been actually transformed into something called the City of David. And I think that that is unethical in the sense that the people living in this village, this neighborhood, are being subject to very unethical political um, pressures. Uh, and this is something that we should be very careful to avoid. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, talking with us. Um, if, if people want to sort of find out more about your work and, and follow um, your publications, where would be the place to go for that? Uh, the place to go would be the, the School of Oriental African Studies um, uh, website, 
Um, and uh, SOAS website, and uh, we are running a summer school actually uh, uh, this summer on uh, tourism and pilgrimage and the cultural industries. Um, and there's all sorts of information there um, about uh, the kind of stuff that we do as a team. So people are very welcome to, to get in touch with any of us. So now it might be interesting to talk about the perceptions of countries and the sort of stories that we tell about them and how that influences tourism. An example of this is like a country like Egypt. Um, Egypt is somewhere we tend to go to to visit the pyramids. Uh, another example could be the Caribbean. We go to the Caribbean for beaches and sunshine and maybe a bit of rum. <laughs> What happens to the tourism in these countries when things like natural disasters or politics affect the perceptions and the myths that are told around these cultures? One uh, interesting example would be to look at Egypt. As you mentioned, Egypt has a, a strong narrative of being a place of great historical significance with the pyramids and um, artefacts that has a strong connection with France and the UK um, and the Middle East. But as soon as, I guess, the Arab Spring happened, um, there was a great, I guess, plummet in the terms of their tourism. Because obviously no one wants to go to a place where there's uh, an uprising and civil unrest. Um, uh, but an interesting thing about uh, Egypt is the fact that Egypt is known for its pyramids. Uh, but it's funny because their pyramids can be observed around the world. And whilst Egypt probably has the most well-preserved um, pyramids you can find there's apparently more pyramids in Sudan um, yeah there's pyramids in Mexico and there's a few mm. scattered around the Middle East itself as well and it's interesting how um, I guess because of the historical narrative and connection that we have to Egypt that let's say Sudan or Mexico doesn't necessarily have that um, the same narrative and uh, can exploit those aspects of its tourism as as well as Egypt can or had, was able to before the Arab Spring. Um, but it is interesting to look at how uh, things that happen in the country uh, politically or, as we said, civil unrest can affect the way that um, the tour, uh, your tourist industry can suddenly um, disappear or plummet. But then also it's you can look at like the, uh, Cuba as another example in the sense of like, I don't know if it, we're, we're going to be referencing Netflix and podcasts and books throughout this episode. But there's a, a great um, Netflix series called Cuba and the Cameraman. Um, I definitely recommend you guys checking it out. And he goes to explore Cuba over a period of, I think it's about 30 years or something like that, during, um, I guess, the rise of Fidel Castro towards his pretty much to the to his death um and seeing the way how um his i guess political shaping of the country affected the uh people the local people so when um fidel castro first came to prominence uh a lot of people were frustrated that uh, Cuba became like a kind of uh, Ibiza, <laughs> the back place of like people from Florida and the US. So this is like the 1950s. If you want to have a good time, you go to Cuba, you smoke a cigar, you go see flappers and dancers and stuff like that. And a lot of people were annoyed by that and they were uh, scared that their culture would be eroded from this type of tourism, even though it was bringing in loads of money. Um, so with the rise of Fidel Castro, he pretty much kind of flipped that on its head and said, no, we're going to um, encourage like different aspects of our um, of our country. We want to have everyone educated, etc., etc." Not to say Fidel Castro was perfect. There's definitely aspects to <laughs> his leadership that is questionable. Um, but what was interesting was um, towards the last kind of episode of this whole whole series you see how after the floor the fall of the USSR and um, Cuba had suffered greatly by the fact that they didn't have a country that they were dependent on no more um, they turned back to tourism so a lot of these people who were highly educated and skilled under Fidel Castro now was out on the streets selling trinkets and um, doing whatnot to make a living because 
like they no longer had that kind of source of uh, um, standing in society and it no longer meant anything. Um, so it was quite sad to see him kind of walk through and then, you know, these people were saying, yeah, I used to be an engineer. Or, yeah, yeah, I used to be a doctor. <laughs> but um, what's quite interesting with um, Cuba is throughout all this upheaval up and down, um, it's it's become a place where people like to go to see 1950s. People say that it's been frozen in time and that um, because of the fact that it it's kept a lot of its cars, the buildings are quite the same from its colonial and, you know, post-colonial era. And so it looks very different from what we would be exposed to, let's say, in the UK or in the US because of the fact that it's frozen in time. So part of its selling point as a tourist is to go and see a relic of an island, which is quite uh, weird how that's become its... Um, uh, I guess selling point or cultural association for mm. tourists now and this is a quite a recent one you know yeah what I found was quite ironic about that was the fact that um, obviously one of the reasons why those buildings were kind of kept the same was it's quite clear in the documentary that there just wasn't any money to renovate yeah. so when you're going around people's houses people were like look I, I jump over this ditch to get to the uh, the other side of my house because like I can't repair the ceiling. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, but like it's almost become like fetishized because mm -hmm. of its sort of like 1950s feel and it's sort of like vintage look and that's really in at the moment. But actually it's come from the fact that actually after like the US left, um, you know, poverty really. Mm. Yeah. Have you guys been to Cuba? No, I really want to go. I, no I really want to go. Yeah, because so somebody was recommending me to go to Cuba. And what they said to me was literally, um, the country is developing now. So if you want to see Cuba the way you imagine it going now, <laughs> it's not going to last long. And, I mean, that just totally highlights this two-sided yeah. situation, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and this very uncomfortable situation where it's like, like you were saying, fetishization um, of like, yeah, wanting to, I mean, obviously pe some people want to just get close to the history and that's fine. But yeah, it's it's kind of very inherent in that uncomfortable thing of like exploiting mm. uh, a, a situation that, that, I mean, people suffer for, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, very important aspect that we want to bring in uh, is the topic of, uh, going to resorts. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, um, there's like there's different ways to travel. Um, and tying into what has also been mentioned in terms of the experience of the locals when resorts and hotels are set up compared to those who are travelling to these places. So what has been found in places like Jamaica and some places in Africa as well, where certain beaches are cornered off for hotels, um, for these tourists to come and experience Jamaica or all these places um, which locals can't go to. Um, and so it's, it's again, tying into the whole segregation of the community and the tourists who go to visit the country, and especially if the community is a big aspect of that country, and yet you are only experiencing them through those who may who maybe are serving you in, the, uh, I guess, in the on the while you're lying down on the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It it's it definitely is quite it's quite a different way to experience um, a country. And to do with this kind of resort thing um, is the fact that local communities end up losing access to what is once their space of residence yes. or even like their way of income. Like the fact that, you know, beaches are cordoned off for yeah. the, the clients of the resort means that, you know, people can't go to that beach anymore and that, that was your, your home. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. I guess that comes down to land and, and the privilege to be able to buy as a hotel and uh, I guess the people that own the hotel to buy off sections of land and be like this is now <laughs> gonna be for this mm -hmm. and no one else can take part or be and have um, connection to that part of the beach mm -hmm. it, it's it's sad yeah I, I would say that I think what makes that sort of like resort style of tourism quite you know 
not the best or the most ethical style of tourism is just the fact there's a complete divide in terms of who is benefiting from the tourism like mm. the local people if you're in a resort you're literally like you know you're you're by you know you're excluding yourself or you're excluding the local community mm. the local community doesn't have the chance to to economically or culturally benefit from you being there mm. um but i'm sure like if you using Jamaica as a uh, example, if you think about why people also go to Jamaica, the people mm. are sold as part of the package, mm. you know what I mean? The food they create, the energy they have, the music they create, that's all part of the package for Jamaica. Um, so it's it's quite sad to feel like that they kind of get excluded. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in other countries, like say Brazil, when the Olympics went over there, there was like this massive feeling of, oh yeah, this is great because, you know, we've always looked to Brazil for like sports and stuff like that. Um, and it could be a massive opportunity for the country to sort of maximize off of that and it to bring in revenue because that's definitely something that the country and a, a wide portion of the community need is money. Mm. Um, but actually what we actually saw happening there is that the government completely went, went into the favelas and took people out of their homes, yeah. you know what I mean? Destroyed favelas. It was hugely damaging for the people who actually live in these places, who have regular struggles anyway, do you yeah. know what I mean? And now they have this extra added burden because, yet again, it's the whole fetishization, maybe the whole myth of what Brazil is supposed to be like mm -hmm. in like trying to clean up the favelas and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the community is completely not benefiting at all yeah. from this form of tourism. And I feel like that's, for me, is the worst or the least ethical way to, to travel. But then also to the idea of sanitising or um, cleaning up the image of your country through mm. destroying the community itself yeah, is, is very alarming. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's so interesting that you bring up um, the Olympics into this discussion because um, I think... It, you actually have to take a moment to think about the Olympics being an opp uh, opportunity for tourism. But of course it is. Like when you think about the Olympics, you're like, oh, there's some kind of like international like relations, bridging of cultures and all this kind of stuff. And it's about sports, right? It's all about sports, except so many people travel to that place in, in, the, in the year of the Olympics, A, to like see the sports stars and, and, and competitions, mm. but also like for it to be uh, an opportunity to see the country. Um, so it's very closely linked. Um, but yeah, I mean, preparing for the Olympics is, is a whole other thing. That's right? exactly it. Um, yeah. And the question is whether it, the benefit of holding the Olympics and having those tourists come with all the <laughs> good pros and cons of that tourism brings, um, but yet having put in so much to prepare for it, whether it outweighs itself, whether the money you get in. Uh, is worth everything, especially because I, I I remember briefly seeing a statistic that said that um, the popularity in terms of tourism of um, Olympics, it ha doesn't hold up to the way it used to back in the day. So that's another question to hold, whether it's valuable to have the Olympics anymore. Okay, so um, like I said before, this this uh, episode has been quite an emotional roller coaster, and, <laughs> and it would be nice to try to end on uh, a bit of a positive note. Just I guess some reflections around like yeah the the positives around mm. uh, tourism, and also some yeah more conscious ways that we can th we can think about traveling because obviously like we said before traveling is is a great way of like expanding your uh, worldview etc etc um so yeah rona take us away um i think using the example of cuba you can see how if tourism is executed in the right way it can be used as a way to like to rebuild an economy um to to provide jobs uh well-paying jobs for the the people and the communities um, who live there. And just from a personal standpoint, I would also say it can be quite humbling to go to another country and to see how things work um, because it can be very different. 
to mm. your everyday life. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, like some of the things that I've been thinking about um, is uh, one thing is that I have these um, crazy German friends who are amazing um, or like very sporty. I mean, they're like real adventurous and, and yeah, very, very, very fit. Um, and actually um, like 80% of them I mean, it's like five of them. They've actually decided um, that they are never going to fly mm. again. Um, that they are going to uh, make that their contribution to reducing um, their carbon footprint mm. on this planet. So wherever they go and do their travels and um, and adventures, they go there by train or they cycle there. Or mm. um, yeah, and and I, I find that pretty inspiring. Yeah, um, it makes sense uh, in the sense of there's. There are positives to traveling, but then there's other there's positive ways to travel as well, um, and that's definitely one thing to explore. Maybe a little bit harder in the UK as we're in Ireland, but we've got the the Eurostar, <laughs> but and coaches, uh, which is yeah it has its perks and and downsides. Um, but and what I, another thing that I found quite interesting was the fact that um, a lot of these the grassroots communities that are trying to make their voices heard and say hey we don't want this type of tourism or this tourism is affecting our day-to-day -day lives in the community so I think that's definitely um, if we pay more attention mm. to people who are living in these places and saying no we don't want it and, and recognizing that their voices should be heard is definitely a way to move forward. Thanks so much for tuning in to Third Waves. And yeah, we'd like to just say a huge thank you to everyone who gave us advice um, and their thoughts on this topic, um, including Professor Debbie Lyle and Tom Silwyn. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Third Waves and stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's Third with Free Eyes. I'm Rona. I'm Tribe. I'm Daniela.